My guest today is Ian Golding, who is a global customer experience specialist. He's very particular about the title specialist as opposed to expert or guru and makes the point that we all continue to learn and can never consider ourselves experts, especially in the field of customer experience. He runs a consulting business called Customer Experience Consulting, which he started in 2011 after 17 years as a practitioner in the corporate world. He divides his time between consulting and sharing knowledge. When I say global, I do mean global. Over the past few years, Ian has worked with organizations in 44 countries across just about any sector you can think of. Ian has dedicated a lot of his time over the last nine years to developing the profession and has worked with organizations such as the Customer Experience Professionals Association over many years to develop and promote the CCXP qualification. And in this episode, you'll hear his views on how the profession needs to develop and also his perspective on what is happening generally in the world of CX. Hi, Ian. Good to see you. Welcome to the show and thanks so much for joining me. Really great pleasure to have you on the show. And, and um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we can cover about you and about what you do and about the industry and what's been going on in 2020 and uh, looking forward to the future. So um, let's kick off. And I mean, perhaps we could start off with a, a little bit about you. Um, we first met in 2013, I think it was, when we were getting Pen going. Um, you hadn't long been forging your own path and perhaps you could tell us in your own words your journey and how and why you've ended up doing what you're doing now. Well, thank you, first of all, for making me feel old, Neil. Um, <laughs> and it's an absolute pleasure to join you. Yeah, it is. You know, when you think back, it, it is a long time ago now, but that time has gone incredibly quickly. And when we first met, I had come out of the corporate world. And I was trying to figure out what that meant, trying to determine how best to I suppose, share what I believed in with as wide an audience as possible. And that, that's how we came across each other. And my background, as you know, had been entirely at that stage in the corporate world, starting in financial services, a bit, bit of time in outsourcing, some time in food service, and then ultimately online retail. And I was always very, very apprehensive about going out on my own because I was brought up as an employee, you know, an, an employee in that corporate environment. And my wife had told me for years, Ian, what are you doing? You know, you, you like helping people. Why don't you go and help lots of companies rather than working for one? But, you know, I, I've always been very risk averse. And I thought, well, no, no, it's too too risky. And will it work? And And so it actually took me being thrust into that position where actually, you know, I, I had the opportunity to do it, that it happened. But it wasn't easy to start with. And, you know, I, I, I needed your help when we first met. But all these years later, it's, it'll be nine years in February that I've been independent. I'm still here, still going strong, <laughs> um, despite everything that's been thrown at me. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, in terms of the roles that you held before starting out on your own, I mean, give us a sense of the kind of stuff that you did and, and what you brought to, to bear as a result of that. It's a very interesting question because my background ultimately is in process improvement. So, you know, I started my career in something that excited me, which sounds very sad, but, you know, I am ex-GE amongst other places and I was introduced at GE to Six Sigma. And I'm old enough to be fortunate to have worked at GE when Jack Welsh was still CEO. And it made so much sense to me. 
and, and it, it it's a little bit like an epiphany, which, which again, it sounds a bit sad, but it's not sad. It, it's true. You know, that I was suddenly told about this thing that would enable a company to do the right thing for customers. And I thought, well, that, that makes sense. And I thought, well, why wouldn't you? And from that moment on, I think instinctively, I realized, I didn't realize at the time, but what was happening is that my brain was telling me that's what you do, Ian. You do the right thing for customers. And, you know, it, it was great when I was at GE, but then I left GE because, you, you, you know, you move on. And I suddenly realized that whilst it was great at GE being led by, you know, one of the most transformational business leaders of all time, most companies didn't want me to do the right thing. And I started to find it really quite painful as I moved from organization to organization. People loved my energy and my enthusiasm and my passion, but they'd always sort of, you know, push me back a little bit. You know, it's like, yeah, 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 and you're right, but just get back in your box. And I, I've told you this story before, but I, I will never, ever forget in 24, sorry, 2004, being called emotionally immature by a boss of mine who who couldn't understand, you know, why are you so passionate about doing the right thing, Ian? But as my career progressed, it was the same thing over and over again. I would try to get companies to listen, to do the right thing, and I would get a lot of traction, but I'd always be faced with smashing my head against a brick wall. And, you know, I, I sort of morphed from process improvement into customer experience without realizing it because, well, no one realized that customer experience was a thing back then. Mm. And I first had customer experience in my job title in 2005. But it was only in 2011 that customer experience was sort of formalized. Mm. And, you know, ultimately, I, again, didn't realize it at the time, but no one was going to derail me. However demotivated I became, I was, I, I, I could only do the right thing. But it just meant that it was very painful because doing the right thing meant that I was never promoted. No one would ever, you know, that they would, I would never get to that position of seniority that as an employee, you think that's what you're there for. That's mm. you know, to get to a director's, but it would never happen to me, but I kept pushing, I kept fighting and people kept listening. And, you know, my 17 years in corporate has enabled me to do what I do. You know, all of those bruises and bashes around the head, <laughs> now enable me to hopefully give others the confidence that they can make a change, even if companies don't want you to do it. Yeah. Okay. And let, let's use that point as a really good pivot into where I wanted to go next, which is you know, quite often when you look at people that do the kinds of things that we do, they sort of fall into two camps. There's either true consulting delivery people that do projects and get stuck into programs and do things and what have you. And then there's evangelists. I'm being very, very general here. I would absolutely have you in the camp of CX evangelist. And I suppose, first of all, do you agree with that? And then uh, secondly, if you do, kind of, you know, what does that involve? What do you, how do you spend your time? It's a good question. I don't like the word evangelist, but I agree with you. All right. So on the one hand, I'm disagreeing. On the other hand, I'm, I'm agreeing. I only don't like the word because I think, as you know, I hate the word expert. And I, I hate people giving the impression that they know everything. Now, an evangelist is slightly different because they don't know everything, but they just have a deep belief in what they do. And I do have a deep belief in what I do. I, I, I've said to you before, and I say to many people that 
customer experience has become my vocation. You know, it's not my job. It's what I believe in. And I think the world does need someone to evangelize, people to evangelize when you are dealing with something that many disagree with or many want to resist happening. And I discovered very early on in my career, actually, that if you believe in something enough, you've got enough conviction, you can convince doubters to actually start believing. And that goes back to my Six Sigma days, actually, because, you know, I, in my very early career at GE, was thrust into a full-time training position teaching actuaries a statistical improvement methodology. And most of my work was in Germany. Now, I was a young Englishman training German statistics professors in a statistical methodology. And trust me, my well, you know, my maths is not very good. And so, you know, I was petrified. But the only way I could convince them was to get them to see the whites of my eyes. Because whilst my stats wasn't very good, I did have a deep belief in that methodology, and I still do. And that's what I needed them to understand. And, and you know, it worked. It was it was really hard. I cried before delivering training to those guys, but it worked. And I think mm. it's stuck with me ever since. If you believe in something, you've got to give others the belief that, you know what, there is something in this. And I think it's been a very important part of my career to date, that if I can give people the confidence and belief that they can influence change, then that's a very important thing for me to do. Uh, and why is it important to you? What, why do you feel so passionately about it? Because I've always believed that, and sometimes I probably believe this too much, but I want to do the right thing for the right reason. I've always believed in that. And when I worked as an employee, I wanted to do the right thing for the right reason. But I was chastised for that because, well, you think it's the right reason, Ian, but who's it the right reason for? Well, well it's right for our customers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, 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 no. We, we need to make money for the shareholder. You know, that's more important. I'm like, but, you know, but we, we don't exist for the shareholder. We exist for the customer. No, no, no. And so constantly, I'm, you know, people are making me think, you know, hang on, uh, they, maybe they're right. You know, am I going mad? Am I? And, and so it, it, I got to a point in my employed career where I thought there was something wrong with me, you know, genuinely. And, and you can start to understand why mental health has become you know, much more prominent thing in business because, you know, th- there is a lot of bullying that goes on. There is a lot of demeaning of people's perspectives. And, you know, I, I had to really battle hard. And and the people that took the brunt of my challenge with dealing with that was my family because I'd come home and I was just in, in a state about all of this. And so I know what that feels like. I, I know what that felt like and I will never forget it. And I mm. see it every day. You know, when I'm talking to my my peers, our peers, those on the inside, I can see exactly the same thing happening to them. And, you know, I know what that feels like. And But I also know at the same time that they are doing the right thing for the right reason. And so what I want to do is to give them the confidence that don't give up. You know, is this hard? You're not kidding. But that's why your organization needs you to do this. They might not think it. They might not thank you. But that's why you're going to do it. Okay. Well, that's thank you for sharing that. It's very candid of you to to be so open about your your motivations and your drivers. And you know, hopefully, when you're talking about stuff, people maybe <laughs> understand a bit better why you're you're driven in the in the way that you are. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you are. Okay. So I mean, 
how do you do that? What, how do you spend your weeks? What do you do when, when you're doing what you do brilliantly? You know, what's the outcome and how does it help customers ultimately? I, again, I, this was never an intention, as you know, it's sort of evolved, but my business is, is almost split down the middle. I spend roughly 50% of my time sharing knowledge, as I like to call it, and roughly 50% of my time consulting. And it, it is it is roughly, I do a lot of writing and speaking and various other things, but that that's predominantly what I do. The sharing knowledge bit is the bit that I'm most proud of in a way, because that leverages what we've just been discussing. And, and I call it sharing knowledge intentionally, because I've believed my whole career that the customer experience is most effective when you give others the knowledge to do it themselves. And so I developed a, a principle that I now call my masterclass and very early on in my independent career. And as you know, I've now delivered that masterclass in 44 countries around the world. And it continues to be something that allows people to understand what I now call the science of customer experience, but as importantly, it demonstrates to them that they can they can turn the theory into something that drives actionable, demonstrable change. The other side of what I do is helping organizations to turn that theory into action. And so there are a number of things I can help companies with. I will help them to understand where they are today in terms of how customer-centric they currently are and what they need to do to mature as well as helping them to actually adopt certain things, certain specific things like customer experience frameworks or understanding how to turn their customer journeys into something they manage dynamically or helping them to understand how to effectively measure the customer experience. So, you know, it's the, I've always said the consulting is important to me because it allows me to ensure that the knowledge I'm sharing is current and fresh. And I'm very, very fortunate, as I know you are, that I get to see this in so many different countries, so many different industries, that it, it does give me a very unusual insight into the way customer experience evolves mm. around the world. Yeah. And that allows me to share that with others. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I mean, on that sharing point, and you know, I know that a lot of your work, almost in an ambassadorial sense, has been around professional development of customer experience people and your work with the the CXPA and, and organizations like that. Uh, and I understand why, you know, from everything you've said so far, why you've got into that. I mean, how have you had to adapt that, particularly over the last year? Because, I mean, the, you know, <laughs> it's not exactly been easy to go and run courses in, in different countries. I mean, I'm assuming you've gone online and, and you've done these kind of format of sessions. But how has it evolved over the last year? And is there still the same sort of demand as you had previously? You know, it, again, none of us knew what was going to happen. And as you know, I... I spend most of my life on an aeroplane. In fact, you and I spent a lot of time on aeroplanes together um, going to various parts of the world. And in January, when all of this started to, you know, rumours started to get out into the ether and people were a bit more uncomfortable about, about travelling, I'd already made a decision to start giving people access to what I was doing virtually. So actually in February, I delivered a number of masterclasses as a hybrid, I had some people in the room and some people online. And it was a bit weird because anyone that's seen me present in person will know that Ian is quite a big gesticulator. And, you know, I charge around and, you know, it's very physical. And suddenly I had to be in front of the laptop doing it. And it was a bit odd. 
But actually, what, again, I didn't know is that that was very good preparation for what was about to come. Yeah. And at the beginning of March, bizarrely, I <laughs> the first week of March, I was in Brazil. I then went from Brazil to Riyadh and then Riyadh to Johannesburg in the first two weeks of March. You know, when I landed in Johannesburg, in fact, I, I couldn't actually get to Johannesburg in the, the initial route that was planned for me because Dubai shut down the travel. I had to go through Addis Ababa. Uh, it's quite remarkable that I managed to make it. But when I landed in Johannesburg, military got onto the aeroplane in hazmat suits with thermometers. So I thought, do you know what? <laughs> I think that this is this is getting to an might, interesting Might need to call it now. Yeah. It's it getting to a point. So yeah. I managed to get home and literally the following week, that's when it all shut down. And everything stopped. All of my work stopped immediately. Now, I'm in this very unusual position that actually I was quite pleased <laughs> in a way because it was an enforced stop because mm. I was just, I, I just, I'm all over the place. It gave me this enforced period of just stop and reflect. And that was quite important because in the first week, I just rested. But during that first week, people started to contact me and say, Ian, I know that this is stuff. We can't do the consulting, but actually, is there any way you could do your masterclass online? So well, yeah, I can give it a go. And so I started to, I think in March, I delivered two masterclasses in exactly the same way we're talking now, virtually. I've never done it like that before. My Wi-Fi connection wasn't particularly great. Um, I didn't use a, a LAN or anything like that. And it was a bit, you know, in and out. And uh, I, I hadn't really thought about, you know, do I need a flip chart behind me? Do I need, I hadn't thought about any of that, but but it worked. I, I also thought, are people going to be able to learn through the screen? You know, because this is, it's a lot of information in a short space of time. How can you engage people through a screen? But it worked. But what I didn't anticipate is how hard it would be. You know, I thought, you know, I'm going to be able to sit for two days doing my master. That's brilliant. I was exhausted afterwards uh, because, uh-huh. you know, the amount of energy you've got to put in through the screen. But, you know, like anything, I then adapted and learned because the first time I did it, I tried to do it as I would do a normal class. But, you know, it didn't work because the brakes weren't often enough. And like anything, it just evolves. And so now it's a little bit like my my workstation is NASA. You know, I've got all these lights and microphones and cameras and various other things. And it works. And I have adapted to any scenario. So some clients will ask for the training to be done in, you know, one hour bursts over a period of time. It all changed. The consulting started to come back in around June as I think people got their heads around nothing was going to change soon. And by September, I would say I was as busy as I was before. And now I would actually say I'm busier than I was before because all of the traveling time has now been filled up with work time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it took a long time for companies to get their heads around the fact that they can't pause forever. You know, we've got to just get on with it. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm now seeing is an increased desire to learn. So I'm getting more and more people asking me to learn and more and more people are now wanting to know, how do I do that? How do I change? How do I adapt? And I suppose, you know, that the, the, this is being recorded on a day when two gigantic retailers have gone bust. Mm. You know, maybe this situation that's accelerated business failure has made some realize we, we cannot wait now. We've got to find a way of transforming ourselves. Mm. Yeah, I think it was 
George Soros, wasn't it, that said you only find out who's wearing clothes when the tide goes out sort of thing, or, or bathers. Yeah, I mean, very good point. And so it's so very interesting that you're you're seeing that kind of level of increased demand. And, and I mean, obviously, you know, we've all seen companies adapt to this kind of remote working and everything else. But I just want to dig into that a little bit. I mean, in, in my perspective on this is, you know, we're sort of seeing two camps of companies. There are companies that are clearly still struggling, even after seven or eight months of this, to, to kind of work out a way of servicing the existing customer demand they had, let alone actually trying to deal with the increased demand that's been put upon them through people wanting to use remote channels. And then there are others that seem to have pivoted really well and kind of either because they had the the capability already in place or indeed some of them have just seemed to fundamentally change the way they they do things i mean what's what's your experience been with your clients have you seen examples of both and and any any particularly good anecdotes and stories because i know you love an anecdote i I do i I think it's interesting you use the word pivot because it's a word that not many people would have used before all of this but i think it has definitely exposed industries different industries ability to adapt And so just to give you a couple of anecdotes, I'm working with an energy company at the moment who for the last 10 years approximately have had arguments and debates with their compliance function about giving people the ability to work from home, especially people in the contact centre. And continuously, no, 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 can't do it. The risk is too great. Can't happen. Lockdown comes. Within three days, everyone's working from home. You know, and and I think what it makes you realize is that businesses can do whatever they want, but it is all about that mindset and that ability to think, you know what, we've got to do this differently. Mm -hmm. The problem is that some recognize that, others don't. Others just cannot break the mold of what they've always done. And, you know, uh, uh, the situation today is a brilliant case in point because Arcadia is a re- having worked in retail for seven years, the fact that Arcadia has gone bust today is of no surprise to me at all, all right? Because I could have told you that years ago, that that would go bust. And if that, it would inevitably have gone bust in the next five years, irrespective of the pandemic. All the pandemic's done is accelerate it. Now, the reason that business has gone bust is because 15 years ago, the man responsible for that empire did not believe that he needed to change. Because 15 years ago, and you've heard me say this before, all retailers had to do was build a shop and people would come because no one had a choice. There was nowhere else to go. But there are business leaders like that leader who have failed to acknowledge that the world is not like that anymore. And this is particularly prevalent or relevant to me because... I worked for a retailer that when it was created in 2002, still had 200 physical department stores, you know, and the owners of that business said, you know what, this doesn't work anymore. People don't want to go anymore. So you know what, let's shut them. Let's shut them and turn this hybrid online retailer with catalogs into a pure play online retailer. That was in 2002. Now, at the time, people thought they were bonkers. What are you doing? But you know what? I bet they're sitting there smiling now because, mm. you know, that that was a recognition that it did not work anymore. And retail is a brilliant example, actually, of the need to pivot because 
it, it's been that way since Amazon came along. <laughs> but how many retailers have ignored it and said, oh, no, 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 we don't need to do that. You know, I, I will never forget Mark Bertrand, the ex-CEO of both Morrison's and M&S, okay, saying when he was at Morrison's that online retail wasn't necessary for Morrison's. <laughs> Right. He actually said that. And when he went to MS, it was the same thing. We don't need online. You know, why? <laughs> you know, what can you not see that consumer behavior is changing? And so I think what this hopefully has made businesses realize, whatever industry they're in, is that nothing is forever anymore. You know, and it doesn't matter who you are or what you are, at some point, another pandemic will come along. Another Brexit will come. Something's going to happen that may make you say, do you know what? This doesn't work anymore. And we're going to have to change direction. And are you willing to do that? And and the, the one final thing I'll say, one of the biggest issues behind all of this that's prevented this pivoting is that organizations are so overly complicated that they don't know how. They don't know how. They have not. Yet that word agile Well, they might talk about agile, but they are so far from being agile that they can't. And you can't actually stop the juggernaut from going in the direction it's going in. And and hopefully this is a massive wake up call. But sadly, I don't think it it will be. I think we'll still see businesses failing to to adapt. But, you know, every time big businesses fail, there is that opportunity for others to learn from it and, and stop it from happening again. Yeah. And I mean, so the whole title of this series is The Rise of the Customer for all all of the reasons you've just been talking about. So thank you for articulating it that way. I haven't actually managed to do that so far myself uh, to introduce this. But um, so clearly you would agree the customer is rising, for want of a better word. And and. I, I take your point about complexity. I take your point about agility and, and you know, the, the practicalities of that sometimes are, are stunningly difficult because of the, the nature of the operating model that people have chosen to adopt to jump into management speak for a moment. But, I mean, how do you see the, I mean, do you think the CX profession, let's just pick on the CX profession because we're talking about customer. Do you think that's evolved over the years to deal with that challenge do you think it's still evolving i mean how, how do you how do you see that and how do you see it evolving in the future as well as so a question three questions in one there for you very good questions if i give one two words to respond to all of them not enough <laughs> um it, it is the best way to to describe it i think am i very positive about the fact that customer experience is now to a degree recognized as a discipline that's a good thing but is it widely recognized enough no are we blessed with thousands and thousands of incredibly capable customer experience professionals who will really make a difference in their organization no not enough is customer experience still being taken seriously enough no not enough, which is why I keep saying not enough. And, and you know, when you think that I, as I say, my, my first had customer experience in my job title in 2005. So we're 15 years later and there are still senior leaders of big corporate organizations around the world that have absolutely no idea what customer experience is, that they understand what it means, but they have no idea how to turn the words into something that drives demonstrable change. And I, I, as you know, I'm very honest with all of this. 
I think the profession has come a little way, but we haven't scratched the surface yet. I think there is a million miles to go because there there is not enough education. There's not enough sharing of knowledge. There are not enough business leaders talking about it. You know, that I think to a degree, I've got to the point where I hate seeing my face and my words on LinkedIn because no one needs to know that Ian Golding gets this. Or I think everyone knows that now. What, what we need to see are CEOs, CFOs, COOs talking about. And we don't. We just don't. And that's, that is the fundamental problem. You know, there's still uh, uh, one of the, the things that I teach, as you know, is the professional qualification in customers. Mm-hmm. And one of the competencies is organizational adoption and accountability. And I will still say to this day that the competency, if I were to score the world of businesses ability to adopt these competencies, the one I would still score the lowest is adoption and accountability. That the lack of accountability is shocking. Shocking. And this is why I think we're still reliant on the goodwill, the humility of leaders, actually, for this to happen. You know, what what is happening too often is that there are customer experience professionals, either on the inside or the outside, like you and me, who are trying to drag people kicking and screaming. All right. Still, metaphorically speaking. But the number of truly transformational business leaders that actually they want to do this, they know it's the right thing to do and they'll make it. You still can't count them on two hands. You know, that's the problem. That mm. That is where we're lacking. And so uh, I think uh, I've now shared knowledge with over 15,000 people in nine years. Less than 2% of those have represented the C-suite or equivalent. And I find that fascinating. Mm. You know, why? Is it because they know all of this already? Is it because they don't care? Is it a combination of both of those things? That that is the fundamental problem. And I talk a lot about Amazon, and I make no apology for talking a lot about Amazon. You know, but what people don't understand about Amazon is that their success is not not it's not an accident. It's not just down to Jeff Bezos. It's because they have instilled a leadership culture that's underpinned by fourteen leadership principles, and that business is run brilliantly. It's got brilliant leadership and they execute, they deliver, and they continue to learn. That's what's missing. And very customer centric as well. <laughs> as a result, absolutely. Yeah, customer absolutely. obsession is their number one leadership yeah. attribute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A really interesting point you're making there. I mean, so so the question is so give you a magic wand and you're saying not enough. So more of what? More of linking it to traditional return on investment conversations because people sometimes i think look at this as a bit of a soft and fluffy profession or is it something different and i don't know i mean how how do we you know because i would i would align myself with you in terms of that sentiment how do we break the the deadlock on this if there was a magic and we know there's no ideal world no magic wand but how many organizations today have someone who is holding the mirror up to the organization when it comes to customer experience at the top table. Okay. How few organizations have that? All right. There are many chief operating officers, chief marketing officers, you know, all sorts of terminologies, but how many 
sit at that top table and hold the mirror up to the rest of the organization. You know, and until customer experience is taken seriously enough that it is actually a board level role, that they are there to hold everyone else to account, to provide the support and education as necessary, that this will not get the traction that it needs. Mm. Uh, I'm working with a, just, just coincidentally, with a regulator in Saudi Arabia at the moment. Quite unusual for me to work with a government entity in that mm. way. The Secretary General of that regulator has attended every meeting that I've run so far. I mean, that that is just unheard of. Mm. But because he's there, everyone wants to, everyone wants to be there. Everyone needs to be. You know, this just doesn't happen. And I think that's what has to change as far as I'm concerned. If we want this to be seen as something that is important. Now, one of the interesting things about my knowledge sharing is that I'm the customer experience course director for the Chartered Institute of Marketing. Mm-hmm. All right. Marketers don't understand this. You know, that, that's unfair. There are many marketers, they do understand it, but they're not really understanding how they need to adapt their role to incorporate customer experience. And, you know, it, what's interesting is that my courses are always oversubscribed. You know, that all marketers, they need to know, they want to know more. But why is marketing a board level role, but customer experience isn't? You know, so it, 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 will it ever happen? Who knows? But that's what I'd love to see more of. Okay. And presumably part of that more of is what's over your left shoulder, I can see on the screen, which is uh, that book you wrote. Uh, I mean, what was the motivation for writing the book? I mean, was it everything you've just been saying? or Because, I mean, it takes a little while to do, especially when you're um, pretty busy anyway. So, Well, as you know, I, I, uh, I have quite a lot of opinions on this subject. And I started writing in 2012. And what some people might not remember is that I actually wrote an article every week for six years, every sometimes more than once a week, because... It was almost like having come out of the corporate world, suddenly I was able to unleash and share all of the things that had been stored up inside of me. And I loved it. I loved writing about customer experience. And it got to the point where I thought, you know, the time is right for me to just collate all of this into something that can help people. And, you know, that it comes back to that point about supporting other professionals. I wanted to create something that if they couldn't hear me speak, they could at least read what I would say, which would give them that practical help to give them the confidence to do what they do. That's why I wrote it with brilliant help from a lady that you know as well, Beth Richardson, who edited it for me. And, you know, it was one of the best things I did because I write as I speak. So people read it and they can hear me speaking, you know, and and it, it gives people confidence. I had a guy recently say to me, a fellow CX professional, that he keeps the book in the boot of his car. Right. I don't know if I've told you this. And when he gets to, well, in fact, he doesn't he doesn't go to work now. But when he used to go to the office, when he got his bag out of the boot of the car, he'd always touch my book because it gave him hope. <laughs> now, 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 whether that's a good thing or not, I don't know. But you know what? Actually, that, that, that made me feel very good, you know. Because, I'm sure it did. Because <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's what we're, I think we've all got a role to play in this. And I think, you know, I know that you give people hope, Neil. You know, it's not necessarily the intention, but that's how hard this is. You know, what we're doing is is really, it's possibly the hardest thing of all. Trying to change the way businesses think is really tough. But 
you know, you and me have got the scars now. It's like, well, nothing really phases us. We just keep going. But when you're on the inside, it's different. It's very different. And whatever you can do to give people that belief, you know, that that's what they need. And, that, and that's really the motivation behind the book. Okay. Very clear. Um, so, I mean, what are you taking just to sort of finishing up this year? I and mean, we've talked to, you know, a lot about acceleration. Obviously, that covers digital. It covers the adoption of technology to try and suck up volume and, and allow people to kind of deal with this this tidal wave of demand that's come from a channel which has been building up quite steadily for a while but perhaps in some cases hasn't been taken so seriously so i mean what do you see sticking you know do you think that i mean it's such a difficult moment and people listening back to this you know might be thinking well they got that one wrong then but i mean just sort of thinking forward what do you what do you think might stick uh you know going forward months years because it's um you know it's it's quite feasible that things just kind of rebound like an elastic band but um i, I don't know what your perspective is i think uh, to a degree that will happen what i think is not necessarily the same as what i hope <laughs> um so i think you're right some will just revert back to type and just carry on as they always were but i hope that even if one percent of organizations change the way they think about what they do, then actually maybe this to a degree has been partially worth it. What, what I hope will stick is the increased understanding that customer experience does not sit in isolation. Mm. And what I mean by that is uh, I think that there is a growing trend of people talking not just about customer experience, but experience management. Because one of the realizations for many not just because of the pandemic, this was happening before, but the pandemic again accelerated it, is an understanding of the relationship between employee experience and customer experience. And I think what many now understand is that there is definitely a, a, a key thing in the relationship between the way you treat your people and the way your people treat your customer. And what I think a lot of people understood when lockdown hit around the world is that you can send your people home but if you don't really think about what that means in practical terms it can have a very negative effect on the the experience you deliver to your customers and as a result the top and bottom line mm. because a lot of companies in the early days did not think about what that meant you know do people have a desk to sit at do they have a comfortable chair do they have a stable wi-fi connection you know how many of my people actually live with their parents, you know, or live with, you know, other people in that? Many people didn't think about that. And they just sent people home, you know, yeah, get on with it. You know, but it's not it's not as simple as that. We've also got the situation where, you know, going to work meant that there was a separation between personal life and work life. Now there isn't. You know, not everyone's lucky to have a, you know, a grand palace in the back of their garden like you do, Neil, to, you know, get, uh, you know what I mean? Not, not everyone can separate work from home life now. And especially in the, the first lockdown in the UK, many were trying to work with kids running around them. And, you know, that, that's really stressful. Uh, and I think some really got that and supported their people. Uh, I work with Budapest Bank in Hungary, as you know, when they sent their people home, they sent their entire working environment home with them. Mm. Literally, they, they picked up the desk, the computer, the chair, everything, and relocated it into their home because they wanted their people to feel, you know, that, that they still were able to work in the same way. 
But I've heard horror stories of, and this is all around the world, of people feeling isolated, you know, just totally demotivated, no support, no communication. And, you know, that that is so damaging in so many ways. So uh, I'm hoping, based on what I'm hearing, that more and more have elevated the employee experience to a, a different level and are understanding that that human interaction is vitally important. And whilst digital will continue to grow, inevitably, um, what I'm hoping is that many realize that it should grow not to replace human interaction, but to enable human interaction to become more effective. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm hoping. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I say, even if only a small proportion do that, then, then I'm, uh, you know, I think that's good progress. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, and, and, you know, I totally agree with you with regards to the, the, the focus on the employee experience. I mean, I think what we're seeing is is absolutely a recognition of giving people flexibility, but in its, in its truest sense and giving them real choices, you know, not sort of saying, you know, you can work at home a bit if you want to, but actually, you know, you can, you can structure your working week in a way that works for you and we'll try and work out how we best provide the infrastructure to, to enable you to do that, which, you know, is, is a, a big ask of some companies because it is, you know, it's not, is logistically not simple, but that's probably one of the biggest things I think we see emerging, definitely. Yeah, is and, it, and it is, it's the way of the world, you know, that this is, even if a vaccine comes along and, you know, that, that we're not going to go completely back to the way we were, no. you know, this is what it is. And so we've got to get our heads around that. And, you know, this is why that word pivot again, we've got to find different ways of working that make this happen. Do you know, do you know the irony, Neil, when I did my dissertation at university, my dissertation was on homeworking, you know, in 1990, whatever it was, <laughs> you know, and still all this time it's taken a pandemic. For, for Do you child. predict the pandemic here? I mean, you know, so. Well, no. <laughs> well, you obviously missed that one. Um, yeah, very good. Thank you. And just on sort of, a slightly adjunct point to that, probably not the right word. How do you see the CX profession evolving over the next few years? Not so much in terms of working from home and stuff, but you know, if you could kind of fast forward five, 10 years, what do you think CX professionals like us will be doing in their companies, in their, in their jobs? I, again, this is a hope stroke think, but probably more of a hope. I hope that the profession will continue to grow. Based on what I'm seeing, there is a an increasing desire for people to want to get recognition for their skill set as a customer experience professional. There is a growing desire of companies to have professionals within their businesses with that skill set. And so I am very much hoping that in if we were to redo this in 10 years time, there would be a much greater proportion of organizations around the world with professionals inside them that practice as customer experience professionals. Uh, I'm intentionally not saying that there would be functions or departments because that isn't necessarily the the, the right thing. But I think practicing CX professionals will continue to grow in number and their skill set will continue to evolve as the environment evolves around us. So I think the most important thing for the profession is that we have got to stay as current as possible. And as new methodologies, new techniques, new competencies evolve, we've got to evolve with them. And, you know, the, the, the current challenge, I think, for our profession is measurement. And, you know, voice of the customer, the way it is currently done, traditionally, it doesn't work anymore. 
Mm. If I'm being completely blunt, we have got to totally rethink the way we are capturing feedback from customers, but that's not happening enough. And, you know, I I interviewed Fred Reichelt two weeks ago. Mm, I know you did, yeah. Yeah, interesting. And, And it's fascinating to hear him say, you know, and I knew he'd say it, but, you know, people are not using Net Promoter as I intended. You know, that they're obsessing with a score. That's mm. not the point. Mm. And it's brilliant. I mean, it's gold to actually have the creator saying it. And mm. what people have totally missed the point of is that it's not called Net Promoter Score anymore. He changed the name years ago to Net Promoter System, you know, to try and stop people obsessing with a score. But unfortunately, it's gone so far. So I think that there are lots of things we've got to change as a customer experience community to continue doing what we do, which is to help organizations understand how to focus on the customer and as a result of that focus, deliver an improvement in customer perception and financial performance for the organization. And and we've got to continually find better ways to make that a a reality. Hence the buy-in will come up and, uh, you know, the, the organization will take it more seriously. Great. Okay, final bit. I know that you, uh, you've got to get off in a few minutes. So uh, I know you love a story as well, but um, a couple of quick fire questions, if I may. So first of all, you know, what do you think being truly customer-centric means? And maybe you could illustrate it with an example. So my, my simple definition is every single time you do anything, you do what you do thinking and acting in the interest of the customer. Every time you do anything. So every time you have a conversation, you know, you're thinking, you know, am I having this conversation because it's the right thing for my customer or am I having this conversation because I'm trying to hit a number for the business? You know, that that's what being truly customer centric means. And we know that most organizations are making people think and act in the interests of the business, not the customer. Hmm. Okay. And I mean, can you recall a customer experience you've had recently that defines fantastic customer experience and customer centricity? So, yes, I'm only hesitating because it might sound, make me sound uh, like a, a, someone I don't want to sound like. But I treated the family prior to this current lockdown in the UK to two nights at the Savoy. Um, There are benefits to sometimes sharing knowledge with people in different companies. So I I was able to benefit from the fact that I knew someone there. And interestingly, when we arrived at the Savoy, the experience was not good because they put us in a room that was opposite the building site. And now it's a really difficult scenario because that industry has been decimated they have about 800 employees, 600 of them were furloughed. I, you know, and it was quite clear that no one of any seniority had ever got into that side of the hotel since they reopened and realized there was a building site. So at seven o'clock in the morning, we were woken up by construction workers. And you know, it's quite it was quite upsetting because it was a real, you know, we'd not been anywhere and it was a real treat, treat for the family. And so we, I didn't do it because I didn't want to, because I, I don't want them to do it just because it's me. So my wife phoned reception and said, look, is there any chance? She was very nice about it. Can we move to another room? Now, they were obviously horrified by this, not because it was me, but because of what my wife said. She was quite upset about it because, you know, this was a really special thing. So we went out for the day. And when we returned, they had moved us and we didn't touch on it. They moved everything lock, stock and barrel to a riverside suite. 
Now, this thing, I mean, it was like £5,000 a night. I mean, it's the kind of thing that there is not a chance I would ever be able to stay in a room like this. And But there was no, they didn't make a big thing of it. They just did it. And when we got back to the Savoy, there's been a programme on TV recently. I don't know if you saw it, but the, the, the head butler from just happened to be in reception when we got back. And the, the kids loved watching the programme, so they knew who he was. And so he took us, he took us to the room and he, uh, it, it was just wonderful. And it was the recovery of something that went wrong without any real prompting. And it was absolutely the right thing to do. And do you know what? That will live with the kids for the rest of their lives. They thought mm. it was an amazing thing. It was wonderful. So, you know, anyone can do that kind of thing. Yeah. You just, things go wrong, just correct it. It's a John Lewis principle of spectacular recovery, isn't it? I think it's uh, that's the, the organisation. Yeah, absolutely. I don't always stay in the Savoy, by the way, Neil. <laughs> £5,000 a night suites. But uh, okay, and just very quickly, without naming the organisation, if I may, a recent example of a, a terrible customer experience that's left you feeling unhappy or that you would never use that organisation again? That's a very good question. I guess you haven't been doing a lot, so. <laughs> no, I, I have to say. Nothing immediately springs to mind, which is a good thing. Mm. You know, you're right. It demonstrates that I'm not going anywhere or doing anything. And so that's a good thing because you know me. There are plenty of experiences that I can recount in the past. Mm. But no, that there aren't any. So, you know, maybe that's not such a bad thing. But, you know, as we mobilize again, you know, businesses need to really focus on this because the fact I can't remember anything is good. But those customers who do remember bad experiences over the last nine months, they're not they're not going to forgive that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I can probably put a, a, an editorial narration over the top of this, which is to say that most of your bad stories are associated with travel or accommodation. <laughs> and on the basis you haven't really been going very far, it's probably... Well, a story that we could repeat, <laughs> which we won't, that you witnessed, but yes. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But uh, no, okay, well, that's a fair point. I mean, I think um, it's, it's an interesting one and certainly um, my my recent experience of, uh, of, a, of a large furniture retailer has been... Um, surprisingly poor actually just in, in and again it's just goes back to the they obviously haven't got themselves organized yet and uh, but su- really surprising you know so uh, but yeah good job that you ha- you haven't experienced it right we've um, we've run out of time Ian. thank you so much for making a bit of time to uh, to have a conversation hopefully people listening to this will have drawn some interesting ideas and thoughts and um as ever you know good challenges around certain things and i know how passionate you are about the uh, the industry and the profession developing so so thank you for sharing that and um well let's chat again soon anytime well let's hope next time Neil, we can do it in person that'd be very nice <laughs> all right cheers ian thank you so much cheers, cheers. Mate. Thanks very much for listening today. If you found that useful, please give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you'd like to know more, you can find us at penpartnership.com or you can follow Pen Partnership on LinkedIn. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.